Welcome, friends, to the next episode of Straw Kitchen. I'm talking to my friend from Egypt, who is currently living in Washington, D.C., Adam. Hi, Adam. How are you today? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks, Jasper. Good to be here with you. Good to be here. We, um, we met recently in, uh, in D.C., and we got to know each other many years ago in Amsterdam. I mean, yeah, can you share how we met, maybe? Yeah, we were working on an impact accelerator uh, slash incubator for Booking.com. And uh, in my world, we immediately kind of hit it off. We just clicked. Um, it was a lot of fun. The, the, the kind of couple of years that we ended up working together, a lot of fun. Um, and then they kind of wound down as, they, as all things do. Yeah, I think it was one of the most interesting projects I've worked on working with all these uh, sustainable tourism entrepreneurs and how did you end up in that program like what has been your path towards working with social entrepreneurs um yeah i think many people call me a social entrepreneur sometimes i would call myself that um i have been working with uh, kind of high impact startups um kind of first of my own launching my own um I was very active in Egypt during the Arab Spring, kind of launching a bunch of social businesses. And then I created um, an innovation hub that incubated tons and tons of uh, social enterprises. And that, that, that then kind of grew more into a network of innovation hubs. I mean, the network was always there, but it just, we kind of, we had one in Cairo, and then there was one in the north of Egypt in Alexandria, and then there was one in the south of Egypt. And so I've, I've kind of been bathing in this space of, uh, uh, kind of high impact, you know, social businesses, social enterprises, nonprofits, and also kind of ecosystem building for a while. And along that journey, we did a cool event called Hub in the Box um, with Impact Hub, with Afri Labs, all the African tech hubs, um, and with a few other networks. And um, in that journey, I met um, a, a kind of mutual friend of ours that I won't name just in case, and she recommended me to Booking.com, and that's kind of where it all took place. Wow! So you've been a lot. You've been active as a social entrepreneur and an ecosystem. And since this name is called Soul Kitchen, like, what is your your soul's purpose? Why are you doing all this work? Yeah. Um, I think my work has always been to create safe spaces to shift consciousness, um, activating people as change makers, contributing to planetary well-being. And so in my world, what someone might call um, supporting social entrepreneurs, um, it, it really, for me anyway, it's about creating a space that's as 
as safe as possible. I mean, no space is ever truly safe, but it's as safe as possible to really allow the the life forward movement of that person or organization to to um, to activate and to kind of move forward. Yeah. So on a soul level, you know, kind of this might sound strange, but on a soul level. My work has always been to work at a systems level. It's, you know, anytime I have an experience, the immediate feeling for me is how do I get this to everyone, especially those that don't have access to it usually. Um, And that kind of takes place at a systemic level. And can you, I think that's very inspiring. Can you elaborate what that shift in consciousness, what that means or what that entails for you? Yeah, I think it happens on many different levels, Jasper. So I think one of the levels that um, it's really evident in for me is in stories. Um, the world is made of stories. Uh, even atoms are a story that we have. You know, they're a really good one. They're very It's a very accurate story, but it's just a story. Um, we don't really know. And so I think for me, shifting consciousness often comes together with shifting mindsets, like what is possible in the world um, that I live in? Who am I in this world? Who are other people? Are they friendly? Are they not friendly? Um, How do I engage the world? Am I someone that can change things in the world or not? Is the world too big for me? Is it something that I can swim in and thrive in? Um, So all of these are the stories that I start with, with people. And, and you know, that, that, you know, that kind of, that comes from, the family that we're born into um, with the people around that family and the culture that we're in, the, the, the way that we're acclimatized to see the world. So all of that's like, it's quite a big story that we have, but it's kind of like Russian dolls, stories within stories within stories. And so I think that's the first place that I, I, I look when, I work, and when I'm working with people and, and even with other organizations is what are the stories that we share and what are the stories that we don't share and how, how do these make things possible and how do these things stop us from doing things in the world right now yeah and you mentioned the impact of, of family also on your on life so what impact did your upbringing or your family have on you god wow that's a big question um i'm still answering that one um i i would say i i was born into a very entrepreneurial family mm-hmm. um and it, it was mixed race and mixed religion so my mum's Egyptian, so not North African. Dad's English. And my mum was Muslim. Um, uh, uh, and my dad um, was Church of England, which I'm not even sure what that really means. It's a form of Christianity, but very, very, <laughs> mild, very mild is my understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, they never pushed religion on me. Um, uh, um, I learned to speak uh, kind of Arabic at a young age. Um, even though I grew up in the UK. So I, I was kind of bilingual at a young age. My whole family are entrepreneurs. And so I grew up in an environment where what was expected of me, so to speak, was to, to kind of start a business um, or to be good at business and, and engage the world from a sense of like agency. Like I can make things happen. I can change things. Um, and, and yeah, so I, you know, my first business, I was 13 years old. I had a, a kind of tea and cake stand in the park um, in summer. And uh, I was horrified when I learned my first lesson that I actually have to pay my grandmom to make the uh, the cookies and the and the biscuits that she was uh, making oh, for me. 
Well, so you learned you learned early on that you have to pay your suppliers. Oh yeah, oh yeah. Pay the supplier, cost of ingredients, um, all of that stuff. Um, and it was great, you know. I, it was a it was a kind of safe, relatively safe environment for me to learn in. Um, yeah, that's great. So your your upbringing had an entrepreneurial impact, and you you have had an international kind of diverse upbringing in terms of race and religion and nationality so i that's kind of yeah now i understand why you have such an international view so yeah so you have a background in system change and social entrepreneurship and what are you currently um excited about uh what are the things you're you're doing at the moment yeah um lots of things i'm always excited it's kind of part of my part of my uh, wiring is to see possibility and to kind of uh, look at um, look at all these different beautiful things happening in the world. I mean, I know I know at the moment we're in a time where it seems a bit bleak. Um, you know, the Ukraine war and just so much polarization and COVID and so many other things we could name. Um, you know, those are the things that are loud in the press. There's so many things that aren't. You know, like Yemen, Central African Republic, um, Syria, still Libya. There's a lot going on in the world, and. Um, I'm excited because I see um, a trend towards a shifting of consciousness um, in terms of what's acceptable or not. Um, so as much as, actually, let me just ground this in something more, more immediate. I think what I'm really enjoying now, Jasper, is working with uh, leaders in managing complexity. Um, mm -hmm. Just to answer your question really directly. So I'm really enjoying that. I I, I coach uh, kind of CEOs, executives, C-suites in multinationals, whether they be you know nonprofits or or companies or high impact organizations. And I also coach um, Ashoka fellows and other kind of really high performing change makers. Um, and I love that because. It really is part of my theory of change. I don't have to do everything myself. If I can work through people and support them in multiplying impact, then um, th that's so much more impact that I might be able to create on my own. So I really appreciate that. I'll give you the example, right? Booking.com, for example. Mm -hmm. We, we, we kind of work with them together on sustainable tourism. And now they're creating a standard for sustainable tourism. And I think that's exactly the right direction, right? It's a really large company, has a very big footprint around the world, um, tons of employees. It really influences the travel in industry. Of course, it should be a high-impact player. Of course, it should be influencing companies to be more responsible in the way they do travel, to manage destinations, to work on carbon, carbon offsetting, all of that stuff. Um, so that's the stuff that gets me really excited in my coaching and consulting practice. Yeah. And then I have a social enterprise that you know about, um, Coco Labs, uh, short for Consciousness Coalition Labs. Mm -hmm. And um, and I'm really, really excited there around um, what we're, it's a, a new term that's coming, kind of coming to us a bit more clearly about equitable well-being. Um, and so what we're, what we're really focused on with Coco Labs is how do we forward, how do we advance equitable well-being for collective thriving? Um, so it's not just the people that have access that are, you know, kind of wealthy or that have the ability to shape their environment, not just those that are well, but 
all of us? How do we all get to be well? And for me, that's like the really big next step in shifting consciousness forward. Wow. So you're working as a coach and you have your own business. I want to know more about the two of them. But can you first elaborate what it means to be an Ashoka fellow? Because you mentioned that briefly. Uh, can you elaborate on that? Yeah, Ashoka, um, beautiful organization, been around for more than 40 years. Um, and early on, their theory of change was something along the lines of, if we can find uh, high-impact um, social entrepreneurs that are changing entire systems, you know, really working at a systemic level to change entire systems, and we can support those people, then we can multiply impact exponentially. Um, so that was a the theory of change. Um, and I think now they have around 4,000 fellows in 90 countries um, doing some really amazing work. You know, some of the fellows are Nobel laureates. Some of them are a lot more under the radar and, and not as kind of well-known. Um, but these are kind of, you know, and, and Ashoka is not the only organization supporting change makers, but Ashoka fellows go through a really rigorous testing, uh, um, not testing, but a really rigorous investigation period where their work is really checked. It's, they're thoroughly vetted. Um, and then, you know, what they get from Ashoka is they get a stipend for a few years to support them in doing the work. They get access to a really big network. Um, you know, I, I'm a fellow, and, and what Ashoka really gave me during the Arab Spring um, when I was doing all that work there was a lot of safety. You know, I, I had a, a an MIT fab lab that could make weapons in theory. Um, you know, we had all the machines to make weapons. A community of 40,000 youth really active in the middle of a revolution where often it was youth standing in front of, you know, um, cops and tanks throwing rocks and, and doing all sorts of things. And so if I, if I wasn't an Ashoka fellow, it would have been a lot more dangerous for me to try and have something like that working because I, I wouldn't have had the political insulation that Ashoka was able to provide me. Wow. So it's kind of a network of, of social entrepreneurs that together work on system change. And um, uh, talking about... Uh, yeah, so before we move to your current activities, you also mentioned the, the, the Arab Spring, right? Can you elaborate on how that was for you and, 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 and what you've done during this period? Yeah, I, I found, um, I mean, it was a crazy time. I'll start with that. It was crazy. Um, I, I don't think people realize just how crazy things can be until they see everything break down, law, order, infrastructure, the whole thing. Um, and at the same time, there's some really beautiful things that, that came out of it. So, you know, I, I kind of, I was living in Japan. I moved back to Egypt in 2010. Uh, a year later, the revolution kicked off. And um, um, the first day, I remember the first day that I went there, it was the 25th of January, the, the beginning of it all. And it felt like a festival, people playing guitars, people singing. And I felt like, okay, I remember this from, from the um, Gulf War days when we, when we did demonstrations. This was in Tahrir Square in the center of Cairo, downtown Cairo. And then over 18 days, the situation kind of really descended into, um, I would say, chaos in many ways. I know also some really beautiful moments, but the first thing is that um, the, the infrastructure that was there to protect people, um, the kind of police force, et cetera, very quickly became the infrastructure that was there to oppress people. Um, and I don't mean that in a political sense. I just mean that if if you wanted a different way of um, functioning for the country, if you wanted a different form of leadership, 
and you went out and demonstrated, you were getting into a lot of trouble. Um, you know, there was a lot of police reprisal. Um, I would say that, you know, kind of seeing tanks and, and you know, kind of all sorts of scary looking police people that you would not usually see, um, that became really commonplace. Um, order broke down quite quickly. Um, so you didn't know who was safe and not safe to be around. Um, and there were some really crazy things that happened, Jasper. So, you know, a, a bit into the revolution, the the kind of regime at the time decided that they wanted to break it all up. So they sent in some, um, you know, guys on on camels with machetes and, and you know, just going in, causing hell. Now, that was a horrible, horrible, horrible day. Um, the police would regularly go in at night um, or during prayer time um, for the Muslims. And so... So all of these really scary things were happening. At one point, even the, the 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 regime opened the prisons and said to the prisoners, "Just go rape and pillage, like create mayhem," because they felt that then people would say, "Hey, we need stability, we need yeah. law and order, we need to have the regime back." And that's not what happened. You know what what actually happened, Jasper, is that with all this chaos and the breakdown of infrastructure, young people started cleaning up the streets. So the streets in Cairo had never been that clean, not since I've known Cairo. You know in in all the years that I've known Egypt, they had, it had never been as clean as during the 18 days of the revolution. Um, the citizens started to protect themselves. So we we formed um, a kind of self-organized roadblocks where, you know, we would take turns kind of manning the roadblocks. Um, we caught a bunch of looters. Um, we would hand them over to the army. Um, the, at, at the time, the army felt really like a safe, that had always been for the people. Um, and that this kind of spirit of self-organization, right? So the media was playing all these videos on TV of an empty Tahrir Square saying, there's nothing there, don't go out, it's just troublemakers, stay at home. And the reality was millions of people self-organizing, millions of people um, showing up and demonstrating and speaking their voice um, in the middle of all of this. Wow. So, and, and, and how did you... Um with your initiatives, like what parts did you try to influence? Yeah, so I think uh, what we were able to do, we, we created um, an innovation hub, uh, green technology innovation hub called ICE Cairo, ICE standing for Innovation, Collaboration, Entrepreneurship. And it was part of the ICE network. Um, and so we launched this kind of innovation hub with all these cool you know, 3D printers and CNC machines and laser cutters and the idea was, hey, let's come together and rebuild the country using green economy. You know, let's create all these green businesses. You know, at the time, there were diesel shortages. Uh, the roads were blocked. There were, you know, electricity cuts, all sorts of problems accessing clean water across Egypt. And so we were like, okay, we can, you know, these are not new problems. We can build new solutions. Um, we can develop products. We can learn together as a community. And so... You know, this little innovation hub, you know, only a few rooms big with a with a fab lab. Um, you know, we were able to train, you know, more than 4,000, 5,000 youth um, in hundreds and hundreds of workshops. Um, uh, we, I think we had, I think, 20 or 30 products released on the market. So kind of um, different products that were innovated. We supported about 600 startups, social businesses. Wow. Um, yeah, I mean, crazy numbers, and not because we were amazing, but because like that's the energy of a revolution, man. You, if you if you can ride that wave, if you can create 
something to translate that energy into um, into kind of action. And I think what we really did, Jasper, is we created a safe space, an alternative to the madness out there. And I'll tell you something really, really quickly that that'll be give you some context, right? Okay. So on one side of a piece of glass, on on, a, on one side of a window would be a workshop of 20 or 30 innovators working on, I don't know, solar energy or water purification. And, and it's mixed community, right? Women and men um, in their 20s, uh, you know, kind of late teens, 20s, 30s, all learning together, in, in, you know, innovating together. And on the other side of that same window would be tanks and tear gas and, and riots and snipers and people throwing raw. I mean, it was mayhem. And and but still, people turned up, man. We we thought that people would stop coming because it was so dangerous to get them out afterwards. Um, and honestly, in hindsight, I, I would have done it very differently. Um, but the reality is that uh, that people wanted to build a, an alternative. They wanted to 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 re really shape their country, and it felt so powerful at the time that all these young people were there, just kind of innovating and creating and putting products on the market even though the market was an absolute disaster at the time, um, in the middle of what felt like a war zone. I mean, it's the closest I've been to a war zone. I've never experienced anything like it. Um, yeah, wow. every day, the last thing I'll say is every day after we had the problem of how to get people home and it was always solved by community. And so all of this, this noise, this you know, 40,000 youth and all these startups, it was run by four people, four or five people. And wow. that was because of the self-organization, man. That, that's really what we discovered in the revolution. So you're creating a safe space and uh, and kind of harnessing this revolutionary uh, energy. And out of these 600 businesses, can you give one example that you're kind of really proud of? If you look back at this phase, yeah, there's um, there's one um, one of them that I really uh, I still follow. Uh, it's a company called Upfuse, and um, Upfuse was actually started by one of our Fab Lab managers. Her name is Rania. Mm -hmm. uh, really, really amazing uh, human being. You know, she came in as a college grad. She she ran our Fab Lab. She started kind of looking around. What, what are the kind of abundant natural resources in Egypt? And one of them is used plastic bags. I mean, they're literally blowing around everywhere, Jasper. It's almost like the country grows them. Um, and so she started kind of looking at different ways to process that. And so she would iron the plastic waste into bags, into clothing, into jewelry. Um, and, you know, kind of we're now more than 10 years later, the company's thriving. They're kind of, I think they're showing in Paris, they're showing in Rome, you know, they're, they're all, every time, everywhere, everywhere I look on the internet, there they are with new models and new, you know, backpacks and new kind of fashion accessories. And it's just like, wow, man, they took something that is really a challenge in Egypt, waste, and they turned it into something that's desirable everywhere. And I, I just think that's so deeply cool. That's uh, that's amazing. Well, I really, I'm inspired already by your your energy and um, and this example. And another question I have: you mentioned the word self-organization. So how do the mechanics of this work? And if people uh, that are listening are interested in in this self-organization, how can they? they apply this to their own environment yeah it's that's a tricky that's a tricky one Jasper it's still something that I'm learning about um, you know you can uh, you can observe the phenomena you can be part of it and you can try and dissect it but there's still some some things that need to happen um, you know one of the questions I have is 
does something really bad need to happen for self-organization to be effective? Because if you look at where self-organization happens, it's usually around um, movements, uh, like the Arab Spring, like student movements. Um, you know, uh, look at Hong Kong. What a beautiful example of self-organization. Um, you know, very difficult context with them in China. I'm not going to get political, but what I will say is that how the demonstrators in Hong Kong organized themselves was it's like poetry. Um, to see how collective thinking and acting can be so powerful um, in the face of such a powerful system is just amazing. And so I think some of the some of the kind of um, ingredients to talk about Soul Kitchen. So some of the ingredients needed for uh, for a good self-organization stew. Yeah. Um, I would say a really powerful call to action. Um, powerful call to action. Yeah. Because then there's kind of a shared belief, right? Yeah. It needs to be something that's going to get people off the couch and into the streets or into whatever. Um, yeah. I think the second thing is you need to make it really accessible. So you can't just say, hey, let's solve poverty. You need to, to, to present, present many ways of doing that that are really accessible and easy to engage with. You have to meet people where they are, basically. Like change, change is very difficult on an individual or collective level. And so one of the ingredients um, is to make it really easy, is to create a path of least resistance that meets people where they are. So I think that's the second ingredient. Um, I think a third ingredient is shared ownership. So people have to feel that they're part of owning the solution and that they are part of shaping what's going on. Um, it, it really needs to be a collective effort where people feel um, that they are so invested in this that there isn't an option to be otherwise. Um, I think another part, and we're seeing this increasingly, is social media, like how we highlight what we're doing publicly really talks a lot about our identity. So it's allowing people to, to, or creating the conditions better for people to um, hold an identity that they can be proud of, that speaks to who they are in the world, that means something for them. Um, I think another part is the people that are suffering the problem should be the people leading the, the, uh, the kind of solution. Mm. Um, it's definitely not a matter of, you know, I want to do something about something over there because I feel it's important even though I'm not experiencing it or it has nothing to do with my general context I'm not the right person to answer that question um, at that point but does it then mean that other people need to solve it or does it mean that you can contribute but you need to involve people that actually live the problem absolutely yeah you know it's kind of standard human-centered design practice you've got to design with the people that are experiencing the problem and not for them um yeah, it seems really obvious now, but believe me, for many years in international development, it wasn't uh, practiced. Yeah, it's like Europeans that want to solve something in Africa, and then they don't have, an, have a clue about the local culture. Can you give Absolutely. one example? Can you give one example based on your experience where uh, the people that suffered the problem uh, created the solution? Or, yeah, or how they have been engaged if they didn't start it. I'll give you an example that I love. Um, and it's uh, it's an example of positive deviance. Positive deviance is where you find people in a context that should be suffering that are not suffering. They're actually thriving, and you can learn from them. So the example I love is in Vietnam, um, where they were looking at malnutrition um, in, I think, rural communities. And what they found is that um, 
in certain communities, certain individuals were thriving, you know, certain families were thriving, even though the rest of the community was malnourished. And these people were really at the edge. They were the ones that were the poorest, that had access to, to the least things. And so by studying them, uh, you know, anthropologists, researchers, uh, you know, local Vietnamese um, uh, human-centered design uh, teams were able to see that as these families were collecting rice from the fields, they were also collecting little shrimp, little insects from the fields. And they were putting those little insects into the broth with the rice. And they were also spending the mealtime with the kids. So what happened was that the kids were eating more nutrient-rich food, which had you know, phosphorus and protein uh, from, from these little insects. And they were finishing the entire meal because the families were with them. And so by seeing how local Vietnamese uh, individuals had already solved the problem, they were able to then amplify that solution to other communities in Vietnam, to other members of that community, and they were able to really shift malnourishment, right? And so that's the textbook example right there, right? The, the solution is held by the people that are experiencing the problem. It's not a solution that you and I would have come up with. Um, yeah. And so it's it's just always there, you know? And and, and speaking of Cocoa Labs, that's, that's what we um, use as our operating system. It's positive deviance. Like, where is the solution already being practiced and how can we amplify it? Um, that's a beautiful uh, a beautiful example that you that you share and um if we if we shift to uh, to coco labs which is the the consciousness collective right yeah consciousness coalition consciousness coalition yeah so so what's the yeah what's going on in the in the consciousness coalition yeah we've we've been trying to answer that question for the last couple of years um we're, we're really evidence-based so what happens for us jasper is that we 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 do research and then it changes what we're thinking about things. And then we're like, ah, oh, crap, how do we, how do we navigate from here? Um, we, where we are at the moment, we just came back from the wellbeing summit uh, that was uh, hosted by the wellbeing project um, in Bilbao. And um, where we are after speaking to many, many, many change makers in the wellbeing space um, is that we are really focused on advancing equitable wellbeing for collective thriving. And what that means to us is we could be at that well-being summit because we have access. We're people that are known, you know, uh, um, being an Ashoka fellow, I get invited to stuff, right? And there's a lot of change makers that are not known and that don't get invited to things that need to be there. And what about the communities, you know, um, that are really in a space that could benefit massively from access to um, uh, simple practices, simple approaches, um, and so where, where we are with Cocoa Labs is that we are starting with interviews. So we're interviewing change makers that are working in the well-being space um, that have successes and failures around that space. We're, we're focused on community well-being and we're very interested in underserved communities, uh, communities that don't have the kind of access that other communities have. And... Um, it's kind of like we're following the theory of base of the pyramid economics. So, you know, base of the pyramid, it's, it's not a, a great term. It, ref, it refers to what's often called the poorest. Um, and in base of the pyramid economics, when you raise the quality of life of the base of pyramid, when you raise the economic power of the base of the pyramid, you have by far the biggest knock-on effect in any country, right? So most charity in, um, in what are called developing countries come from the poorest, not from the wealthiest. That's where most charity comes from. And so um, we have a similar theory about well-being. Like if we can raise the well-being of the people that need it most, 
we believe that that will have the biggest effect, knock-on effect in any country. And so as a coalition, what we're really interested in is we want people in education, we want people in healthcare, we want people in the future of work, um, and all of these people looking at how do we put material, how do we put content into our sectors, our verticals, that um, shift people at a younger age, that make more possibility in the well-being space, that prioritize well-being. Um, you know, if you look at our space, Jasper, of change makers, mm -hmm. how many change makers do you know that have not burned out? I don't know one. But how many change makers do you know that haven't burned out? That's um, yeah, it's a very stressful uh, job. I'm noticing that also when I work uh, with change makers. So. Is that also how you enter the well-being uh, space? Because you you saw a lot of burnouts in your environments. Yeah, I mean, for me, kind of coming out of the Arab Spring, um, I had some horrible experience. I mean, it sounds great, right? All these startups and you know, I, I, I kind of created multiple initiatives, and it all sounded great on paper. And the reality was, Jasper, I was burning out twice a year, um, at least sometimes three times a year. My teams were burning out. Um, when you're when you're in a space where leading from in front, you know, that heropreneurship is glorified um, in, in a revolution. And everyone is talking about how busy they are and how that they're doing way more than anyone else. It's such a toxic environment. I, I just, you know, it really was such a lesson for me to come out of that. And so I spent 10 years after the Arab Spring trying to deal with PTSD that I didn't even know I had. I didn't know I had PTSD. I just, all I knew is that I couldn't do things anymore. I couldn't get results anymore. Like I was trying to build organizations and they weren't really working out. Um, I, I had terrible relationships with the uh, co you know, co-founders of Ice Cairo and the other Ice Hubs. Um, there were there were really toxic interactions in the ecosystem, and I was like, "This is a mess. This this is not what we set out to create." Um, and so I, I went to Think uh, Creative Leadership School in Amsterdam. Um, had my first coaching there. And in the coaching, had my first experience of looking at myself in the mirror, but really clearly. And it was horrific, Jasper. I was like, holy <laughs> Disaster, man. A disaster. I, you know, I thought I was some, somewhere very different than I was. And the reality was I was fully burned out. And I was suffering from PTSD. Um, spent another few years trying to deal with it really unsuccessfully, you know, therapy and, and, you know, trying to, trying to get healthy, trying to get my health back. That was a, a mission that never got anywhere. Um, and then finally I, I went to a, a coaching school in the U S um, in um, new ventures West. And um, you know, here's what happened. So I was at Ashoka, this guy comes in, he's the talker, he's a speaker for the day. And as soon as he comes in, I'm like, Holy crap, who is this person? I want to be him his presence, his ability to connect with everyone in the room and all the people online, um, the way that he showed up, the way that he spoke and engaged people, the way, he, the way that he could listen so loudly. I mean, you could hear him listening, you know, it was really something. And, and, um, and so I was like, I want that. And so I, you know, I had lunch with him afterwards. His name is James Flaherty. Um, you know, in my world, he's one of the, one of the top coaches around. Um, And uh, and ended up studying with him. So he became my teacher um, and is now my coach and my mentor. And um, in that process, Jasper, I, I started to learn all these things about the world. Like, for example, my body was a thing. I had no idea that this field of somatics existed and that my body was holding all this trauma. 
you know, there's a great book by Bessel, uh, Bessel van der Kolk, Dutch guy, uh, called The Body Keeps a Score. I had no idea about the fact that my body was keeping the score and that the reason I wasn't able to do anything was that I had PTSD. And so going through this beautiful one-year program that was absolutely transformative uh, for me, I was able to process a lot of the PTSD and trauma. And not only that, you know, I, I came out in a way where I felt strong again and I felt capable in the world. And then for me, the question was, how do we get this to everyone? How do we get this to everyone? Like looking at intergenerational trauma and, and some of the, uh, the kind of effects that that has. So intergenerational poverty is very connected to intergenerational trauma. What all these people that what connection between intergenerational trauma and poverty? When you're when you're kind of traumatized, um, generation over generation, it's kind of like mercury in in fish. You know, when you eat fish, the really big fish, they've eaten so many smaller fish down the food chain that they are ex it's especially toxic. That's why people don't eat di uh, dolphins anymore. They're, they're so toxic. It's kind of similar, generation over generation, it accumulates in, in the body. And so you, you get this space where the stories about what's possible in the world become smaller and smaller with each generation. For each generation, the world becomes more dangerous. Um, there's more threat, more risk. We have to be closer to the wall. We have to keep our heads down. That's not possible for people like us. And that strengthens generation over generation until you get to a point where even thinking about sending your kids to school is uh, ridiculous. That's not for us. That's not what we do. And um, it, you know, these communities can become incredibly impoverished um, through becoming incredibly traumatized. Um, and so, at New Ventures West, I was able to, to to resolve that in myself by having a coach and by having access to all these tools. And that's kind of the origins of Coco Labs. We were like, we need to get this to everyone. Everyone needs to have the ability to um, to access more of their critical capacity to, to reason, to make better decisions, um, to to be well. You know, if we can make better decisions generation over generation, then communities can uh, be well, even in the face of complexity and, and 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 trauma. They can be well if they just have access to the tools that allow them to um, really increase their, their buffer, their, their capacity to, to navigate um, all of these crazy things. That's, that's beautiful. And um, I want to know more how you bring well-being to more people. But first, I want to understand, uh, at some point in your life, you discovered the relevance of your body. So what happened before? Were you more mind-driven or forgetting the body? And I'm asking this because I also just discovered... Uh, the relevance of my body, I'm treating it, it better now. So can you elaborate on that? Yeah, my, my body was like a vehicle, right? I would just drive it places and, and make it do things and treat it very badly um, and get very angry that it didn't function the way that I wanted. Um, it was definitely something that I used and abused um, with, with very little compassion. Um, I grew up in, in the UK where talking about the body, you know, back in the, in the 70s and 80s wasn't a great thing and the 90s wasn't a great thing. You kind of were almost shamed of the body. Um, and, and also, um, you know, in, in Egypt, um, at, at least in the circles that I was in, talking about self-care and being good to yourself. And it just came across as really arrogant. Like it really, it really rubbed me the wrong way. The first few years I heard about, you know, self-love and self-care. 
And I was almost allergic to it. Yes, but I'm not kidding. I mean, really, like it, you know, it, it almost felt like something really shameful um, to talk about and to expect. Yeah, when you're more performance driven, it sounds a bit wishy-washy, right? Absolutely. Take care, take good care of yourself or, or love yourself. Um, I, 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 for a lot of my life, had no capacity to do either of those things, um, you know. And so... Um, kind of coming into the reality that this body is, it's, it's, we've got all these incredible, we've got these three main areas of neurons, right? You've got the head, you've got the, like, what people call the heart center and the belly, right? And they're stuffed full of neurons. And most of the information from the belly and the brain actually travels upwards. It's not downwards. It's not the brain telling the gut what to do. It's actually the gut telling um, the brain what's going on. And so kind of discovering that, the, that, um, Part of me, you know, the right, especially the right hemisphere of the brain, it's always looking for danger, and that, that I feel that in in my body. I don't feel it in my head. There's, this is in the unconscious. I, I'm not getting a message saying, "Oh, danger in the air," in a in a any form of cognitive capacity. But I am getting it in my body. I'm getting a tightness in the stomach, a, a kind of armoring in the chest, or like a um, you know a sense of mobilizing, you know, a sense of movement in my arms, and so that opened up a completely different world for me, especially in leadership, right? In being able to, to, to use two more areas of my body that were completely out there, my emotional intelligence, you know, EQ, and then somatic intelligence. Um, um, and how it changed things for me, Asper, is that I was able to understand how to, to manage my nervous system so much better. And that's really eventually what led to like burning out less. So I could tell when I was pushing too hard because I would start listening to my body and saying, oh my God, like my belly is telling me that, that enough is enough for now. Yeah. You know, or, or you know, kind of feeling that my, my energy levels drain. I'd be like, this is not the energy level I'm, I'm, I need to sustain. Get up and do something else. You know, go for a walk, do some Qigong, um, do anything, you know, kind of put on some music and, and, and jump around for a bit. Um, but, you know, kind of connecting with the body and the intelligence of the body has been transformative for me in terms of not burning out, uh, in terms of managing and processing trauma massively. Some amazing body-based techniques like trauma release exercise, which I highly recommend, um, that are really simple, that allow the body to do its job of flushing out trauma and stress and, and all of those things. Did that answer your question? Yeah, it, it does. It does. It's... Uh... So interesting that you can take your body for granted such a long time, right? So, so you took a coaching degree, you met a role model coach, you worked on your traumas, you discovered the power of your body, and now you want to bring well-being uh, towards more people with the Consciousness Coalition. So how how do you uh, achieve that? I mean, you have a certain vision, but do you already have like a practical approach on, on how to achieve that? Yeah, we're, we're putting the approach together. It, you know, the Wellbeing Summit, um, a big shout out to the Wellbeing Project team for, for pulling off such a, an amazing summit. Thousand people, Jasper, a thousand people in Bilbao, Spain, to, to start the ecosystem building on, on this. Really, really amazing. That, that summit was also very disruptive for us. So, you know, it kind of really poked a lot of holes in our thinking. I'll give you an example, right? One of the things that we were talking about was community resilience. And what we piece together through different conversations is that communities are plenty resilient. Um, you know, in fact, if anything, it's the leaders that need resilience, not the communities. And also 
when you talk about resilient communities, you're also you're often talking about giving communities the tools to put up with more crap for longer, which doesn't change things. So if a community seems to be doing slightly better because it has better tools, then people are less likely to mobilize around changing the conditions that lead to the crap that the communities have to deal with in the first place, right? So it was beautiful, right? We have all these beautiful change makers poking holes in our thinking, talking about burnout and well-being and collective thriving and intergenerational trauma. And I think where, where we are now is that we're starting with interviews, um, uh, which is something that you know all about. Um, <clears throat> we have um, a leadership program. It's called the Integrated Leadership Program. And it, it relates a lot to some of the somatic stuff that we've been talking about, a lot of the shadow work, you know, kind of what are the parts of us that we're ashamed of that we need to really acknowledge and integrate, not get rid of, not push away. Um, because for systems leaders, whatever is inside the leader is inside the system. How we show up in the system is directly proportional to our inner state. And so these leaders need to do the work to be able to show up in a way where they're not in the way in systems change work. So that's the first program. Then the second program is um, um, a collaborative innovation coalition, which basically means we're getting in Latin America about 20 change makers, um, um, people that we know, Ashoka fellows and, and fellows from other organizations, people in government, private sector, civil society. We're getting them together in a coalition. And the question that we're asking together in Latin America and also another coalition in Africa um, with the Africa Fellowship team is what does equitable well-being mean here? What does it mean in each country? What does it mean in each community? Because it means very different things in different contexts. You know, in, in some communities, well-being happens. It's grounded in community. And in others, you know, kind of think more, more of the West. It's much more an indiv individual thing, um, although it can occur in, in, in community. So we're answering that question first. And then we're putting um, these incredible change makers through, you know, a, th a three-year journey where the coalition will work together to look at critical shifts that need to happen in the systems that they're in and how in their work they can engineer those critical shifts to, to really have a systemic change um, around creating access to equitable well-being for the, the people that need it most. And then the whole thing is going to be research-based. So we, we want to measure that what we're doing actually makes any difference um, so that in the future other people can kind of riff on what worked and kind of amplify that, um, et cetera. So what we think will happen is that out of, out of the end of this from the collaborative innovation, it's like a human-centered design cycle. There'll probably be in Latin America, you know, maybe 10 projects and in Africa, 10 projects um, that are looking at um, uh, kind of advancing equitable well-being. Wow, that's uh, beautiful. I really like how your personal challenges have turned into a, a broader mission, right? To, to help other people. I recently learned in Costa Rica from someone that the medicine you receive is the medicine you give uh, later on in life. Yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, when I think about well-being, it just came to my mind uh, this minute. You can have um, challenges because of lack, for instance, because you lack money, you don't have enough food. But you can also have challenges because of abundance. You know, you, you take too much alcohol or too much coffee. So where do you focus on most if you had to pick uh, these two, one of these two? Oh, good question for myself. Um, or, or, yeah, for yourself or for, or for your broader mission, right? Okay. Well, I think for myself, I would say... One more addition. 
I can imagine in certain African countries, people don't have enough money to buy food. Whereas maybe in America, wealthier people have too much ice cream, right? So, so that's why I'm asking also. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so to, to answer kind of more on the, on the coalition side of things, um, every country, every region, every country, every community will have a slightly different, different definition of what well-being means to them. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things that, we, you know, one of the elephants in the room I think we should, we should really call out is that um, poverty doesn't necessarily mean not being well. Um, there are plenty of communities that are impoverished. You know, they, they don't have much money, but are actually very well. Um, you know, in, in Senegal, I've been to eco-villages where the people are thriving. I mean, really thriving. And yeah, they don't have any money, but they have social systems, they have ecological systems, they have cultural systems that, that really support being well. Um, in the Philippines, you know, the Philippines gets knocked by a tornado all the time. And... Um, the slums are rebuilt in moments and the karaoke machines go back up and people are singing and partying. And I mean, talk about, you know, um, thriving in poverty, like there's communities really doing it. Um, and I think, you know, it's, it's a, it's a really interesting question you ask, because I think that um, if you look at some of the Western malaises, like some of the things affecting the West, it's the abundance that creates the problem, right? Too much choice. Um, that people get frozen um, in terms of what they could do for a living. They're seeing, you know, what, one of the things I notice in the US is that there's such overwhelming displays of wealth that for people that don't have any, it, it is such a, um, an incredible gap. I mean, incredible gap. I would even say, and, and you know, um, I have no evidence, I have no data that, I, that I'm aware of to back this up, but I would, I would almost say that the U.S. is, uh, yes, it's a first world nation and parts of it are incredibly like developing countries with maybe even less access. And the whole time with this cultural belief that, you know, there's, um, that we're a first world country and that is crippling in many ways. So, yeah, I totally see how um, the, the, the overabundance can be a really big problem um, as well. I would say for Coco, everyone is going to answer that question themselves in the coalition. And we will probably come out with dozens of definition of equitable well-being. And that's part of the mission, that we want to hear what different things mean to, you know. The, the last thing I'll say is look at Bhutan, right? The, the Global Happiness Index instead mm -hmm. of the GDP. Um, I think that's a, that's a great way. It, you know, I was speaking to a mentor of mine yesterday, and he was saying how in Bhutan during the, during the pandemic, they the first thing that they did was make sure that everyone had everything that they needed to be well, mm -hmm. not lockdowns and not locking people in at home and all those other things, but li literally getting to people, the stuff they needed to be well. And I think they had one fatality in the, in the pandemic, something like that. I mean, it was just ridiculous how differently Bhutan handled the pandemic because they put well-being and happiness um, as a foundational principle of what they're doing. Um, and, you know, we at COCO, we would like to see that all countries do the same thing, that it becomes a national priority in, in all countries, that people are well. Um, yeah. yeah, so does that answer the question? No, it definitely does. And I I, I really am inspired by uh, your vision of also maybe taking the concept of well-being more mainstream. Because yeah? in Los Angeles, there's a big well-being scene, but it might be elitist. So I'm inspired that you want to take it uh, you want to take it mainstream 
And you mentioned in the Wellbeing Summit, like thousand people attended. I've never attended a Wellbeing Summit in my life. And, and some people that listen uh, might never have attended either. So who are those people visiting a Wellbeing Summit in Spain and, 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 and what do they do? Can you give a few examples? Yeah, um, the, the Wellbeing Summit um, is part of the Wellbeing Project. And the Wellbeing Project um, was kind of incubated at Ashoka. So it was kind of one of the Ashoka Fellows, a guy called Aaron, um, you know, went to Bill Drayton, founder of Ashoka, and said, hey, I, I want some support in this. And then some other big organizations came on. I think Synergos, um, um, Porticus, um, uh, Impact Hub, And I think uh, now, is it Georgetown University or George Washington University? One of the, the George universities came on. And so it's, it's an organization that is made up, made up of many organizations. And its focus is, how do we bring well-being to change makers? Because if change makers keep burning out, we get really crappy results in systems change and change in general. So how do we bring, you know, how do we support change makers and having a different way of doing it? Um, they then invite all of the people from those different organizations. So Ashoka Fellows, you know, the grantees of all these different organizations, all these change makers, um, and also the people in those, organiza in those organizations. So at the Wellbeing Summit, there were a lot of sessions just for the co-creators, the, co the, the different organizations that had built the, the project, and also, um, you know, the, the partners, all the different organizations partnered in this. We're having different meetings, as well as you know, change makers coming to to really understand how art and creativity and well-being are central to you know um, change making being a sustainable um, activity. That we can bring more people in um, to the space in a way that's healthy that generates those kind of results. Yeah, so there's clearly an overlap between the the, the change making space and the, the well-being space. That's That's really interesting. I never thought about it like that earlier. And um, um, yeah, so we have an understanding of the Consciousness Coalition, what you're doing there. And then your second activity is that you're coaching leaders and helping them to manage and thrive in uh, complexity. And my first question there, or is there anything else you want to say about the, the Consciousness Coalition before we shift to, to another topic? Um, I don't think so. You know, we're we're... It's super exciting. There's lots of things happening. It's still very much in beta, so we're still learning uh, as we go. Um, I'll share more stuff with you over time, as as always, and and you'll be invited to you know some of the convenings. Um, but no, I think you know I think that's it. It's just kind of advancing equitable well-being for collective thriving in a nutshell. That's what we're up to. That's uh, that's amazing. Well, thank you for for sharing. Yeah. So if we look at your second activity, I mean, in the Netherlands, there are a hundred thousand coaches. I mean, we're a small country and there's a hundred thousand coaches. That's a Dutch comedian was making fun of that uh, lately, that everyone nowadays is a coach, but there's different types of coaches and different tools and approaches. Um, what's your approach? I think you're also into integral coaching. Is, is that what you're doing or can you elaborate on that? Yeah. Yeah. I, I trained in integral coaching. Um, and yeah, there are a lot of coaches around and I think that's a good thing to be honest. Um, one, one of the things I think people lack Jasper is someone that gives them their full attention and that supports them in making, um, 
changes in life or making difficult decisions or in doing things better. I think we just lack that. Um, even though we have loved ones and partners, they can't show up for us in that way because they have too much in relation to us. Um, and so having someone whose role in your life is just to support you um, in, in making the best decisions you can, in accessing your own wisdom, in um, really moving forward, what, what we would call in focusing life forward movement, um, you know, I think that's invaluable. And I think more leaders need those skills, you know. I think yeah. if every CEO and every manager and every employee was a coach, people would show up and organizations would show up in a really different way. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I agree. And um, um, yeah, how do you, when you coach a leader, like where do you start? Like what type of questions do you start with or do you do an assessment or how does that look like? Yeah, so um, integral coaching really focuses on how people are in in their um, in the world, how they show up in the world, how they um, how they what the experience of being with that person is like, and it really focuses on long term excellence. Um, it focuses on being self generating, so so you know the client can constantly um, develop themselves over time to deeper deeper levels of their own development. And it focuses on long-term excellence. So how do we how do we learn the skills to continually recreate ourselves? Um, and so to make that happen, a lot of assessments happen at first. So um, my favorite tool is the Enneagram. So I start with the Enneagram. Um, uh, I always ask my clients to do an Enneagram test. And then I send them intake questions. And there's a lot of questions. I've done another episode with uh, Josh Lefine. He's an American uh, Enneagram teacher uh, that you introduced me uh, uh, to. But if people don't have time to listen to that episode, can you briefly explain what the Enneagram is? Yeah. Uh, wow. Uh, sorry, Josh, in advance. Actually, I'm having um, I'm having a chat with Josh later today, so it's funny that you bring bring up his name. <laughs> um, yeah, Enneagram is an ancient personality typing system um, that has as part of it, it's magic. Um, it has um, a development uh, aspect, a developmental aspect. So you're not only finding out what your personality is kind of like, but also you're understanding um, how to, to kind of develop yourself uh, as a human being to be happier, to be more in tune with who you are. Um, what I love about it, Jasper, is it, it um, you know, there's nine personality types and we have all nine in us. Even though we might lead one or two, we have all nine in us. And so it has really helped me understand that two different people can see the world uh, in very, very different ways, can see the same thing in very, very different ways. And neither is right or wrong in the slightest. They both just are true for those people. And that the way that they're seeing the world tells us so much about how they can set themselves free in, in their own way, in their own worlds. So, you know, in a nutshell... I wouldn't want to go further because uh, some of the uh, Enneagram friends I have would uh, uh, yeah. probably not appreciate, uh, you know, my definition. But yeah, it's there. It's there to help us see ourselves really clearly, and to understand that we are not the 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 patterns that show up in our lives. That's not us. Those are yeah. parts of us that we can work with. Yeah. So you can kind of work with your patterns. And what type of Enneagram are you? Uh, uh, yeah. And why? Yeah. I Mm -hmm. Now, which type are you, and and uh, what does it say about you? 
I'm an Enneagram 7 with an 8 wing. <clears throat> and what that says about me is that um, uh, I'm involved in many initiatives, as you can tell. You know, 7s are always kind of multitasking and, and multiple initiatives. Um, the 8 wing uh, can mean that I have to, I, I can show up as a leader that can be a bit overpowering if I'm not careful. Um, the seven in me can be a bit too interested in too many things. So for me, a lot of the work is, yeah, absolutely. And you know that, you know that from knowing me. Multi-talented or scattered, right? Depending on how you... Absolutely, yeah. E either either really capable in many areas or just all over the place. And the, the, and the line between the two can be quite fine. Um, and so, uh, you know, the work for me, Jasper, is always leaning back a bit, always trying to do a bit less, always trying to slow down a bit more. Um, that's my work. Um, because, you know, no for me is a superpower. That word is a superpower. Um, saying no to more things, um, not getting involved in something that looks great, um, working on not doing the things I like as much if they don't move me towards what I'm trying to accomplish in the world. Um, plenty of things I like. Uh, I could be many different things in the world, and yet what I've chosen to be means I need to say no to many other things. Yeah, um, that consistent. That's beautiful. So your strength, your enthusiasm, uh, your your multi-talentness can also be be a, a pitfall. So thank you for sharing. So we we go back to the previous question, right? So how you work with leaders, how how you start, and so you said you you use the enneagram, and then yeah, I want to know more, of course. Yeah, look, um, I send my clients a lot of intake questions, and then we have an intake session where I'm asking a whole bunch of questions across different domains of the life. So there's the the internal domain, the stuff that I can only know about you, Jasper, if you tell me. I don't know how you feel about yourself. I don't know how you, you feel about your family. I don't know how you think of yourself as a leader. I have to ask you those questions. And then, you know, the domain of the stuff that I can see about you, the stuff that, you know, kind of I see in communicating with you, how you show up with your, in your relationships and in your organizations and the people that you work with, how you experience the world, the environment around you. Um, and then other other areas like how capable you are in using your emotional intelligence or your somatic intelligence, um, how integrating you are. Do you, do you bring all the different parts of you, good and bad, um, into your into your day? You know, are you fully showing up as you, or are there parts of you that you're cutting off? Um, you know, how how are you wired to experience the world? Is it through your head? Is it through your heart? Is it through your body? Um, you know. So all of that stuff. Um, with a lot of the executives, I'll do 360s as well. So I'll interview different team members. Um, you know, I'll be asking for different stories uh, from them. Uh, you know, about my clients demonstrating great leadership or leadership edges. And then I think a lot of the work, Jasper, and um, I think this is something a, a, bit, a topic I've been talking about a lot recently. A lot of the work is supporting my client in not being judgmental around what we find. Because it's just data. It's not good or bad. It's just information. Judgmental about what you find about yourself? Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, you, you do the Enneagram test. You do um, all these different assessments. You come out and, and usually there's uh, a lot of excitement from the client to see themselves so clearly. It's generally the first thing. And then as we start doing the work, they realize, oh, there's stuff in me I have to look at. And that's not easy. And the reality is that's all of us. Every single one of us has work to do, inner work to do, um, to become more developed. And it's usually in areas that we find painful. 
you know? So for an Enneagram seven like myself, um, I have to be careful to not overindulge in life, to not meet too many people, to not lead too many movements, because that's all in my nature. Um, and so pulling back from that can feel excruciating um, if, if when you're new to the work. And the reality is that for an Enneagram 7 like myself, the next big adventure is never on the outside. It's always on the inside. So a, a 7, when they come into presence, they feel their real strength is. That's where their real strength is. That's where the real beauty of experience is. It's not in the outside world. It's inner. And so working with clients to take take them to their sweet spot where how they're showing up and who they are is exactly aligned with their values. Yeah. Um, that, yeah. That it's one more thing that resonates a lot. I'm also seven and uh, uh, three months ago, I quit drinking alcohol. It really helps me to get into myself, but I really need to slow down sometimes, say no. So all these things resonate. And since you're seven years older than me, I always learn a lot from, from your path, right? Because you're a little bit ahead of me. So that's but that's that's the side note. So yeah, continue on the on the leaders. Yeah, um, I don't think I'm ahead of you, Jasper. I think I think that we teach each other different things. Um, okay. Yeah, and uh, that's at least that's my, been my experience in the years that we've known each other. But um, yeah, I'd, I would say also um, in in the complexity that we live in today, um, Jasper. So like the pandemic and polarized you know kind of geopolitics and the rising costs um of things and you know kind of the 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 kind of growing gap between the haves and the not haves um we increasingly live in far more complicated systems and companies are far more complicated because everything's interconnected you know like uh, the war in ukraine meant less wheat going to egypt so prices in egypt for the poorest have gone up which has affected, you know, services in different countries. And it's just crazy how interconnected everything is. And so I think, you know, with my coaching work, um, it's always about A, supporting the client in seeing themselves clearly. B, supporting them in knowing how to work with their nervous system so that when they're triggered, when they're angry, when the thing that happens that drives them crazy, that they don't have to, they don't have to react that they can act, right? It's really increasing the time between stimulus and response. And, and in that gap between stimulus and response is our freedom. If, if something can happen that in, you know, a few years ago would have really triggered me and driven me crazy and gotten a big reaction out of me, and I can actually just sit with it and say, ah, oh, I feel that in my belly. And, you know, what's coming to me is this sense of real anger that I want to react. And I experienced that, you know, in my chest and in my belly. And there's a sense of just wanting to scream and just being present with all of that, right? And creating space around it, creating more space and more space so that that experience can be there and I don't have to react. And then I can come back to myself when my nervous system is settled and then function more effectively in the world. That's a really, really, really powerful thing um, to offer leaders. And then I would say that um, from that point on, Everything is really about refining um, that the work that I'm doing in the world is meaningful to me and is aligned with who I am and that I'm doing it in a way that I'm aligned with. So it's in, in the Enneagram speak, it's like, what is my essential self? What is my essence? And how am I really living that in the world, in my work life, in my home life, in everything that I do? 
how do I find more spaces where I'm not triggered, but I'm in a, in a glimmer? I'm in a space of feeling great and positive, loving the feeling of being present in my body, um, and not judging myself when I make mistakes, not thinking that I'm a terrible human being because I did this or that, but seeing that <clears throat> I'm made up of all these parts. Now, there's the part of me that wants to go to the gym. There's a part of me that doesn't. There's another part that has a judgment about the part that doesn't. And there's all of these parts are me. And if I can just create space for all of them and let them all be heard, let them all be um, heard equally, then there's an integration that happens where I'm not at war with myself anymore. I can see these conversations with, you know, what in Buddhism they would call metta, with a loving kindness, with a non-judgmental attitude. And I can just allow that to be. It creates so much more well-being in the world when I'm not fighting myself or fighting others around me. Um, even if there is still that reaction going on inside, I can be with it. So that's kind of the work that I'm, I'm really moving my clients towards. That's, uh, that's, that's beautiful. The, the voices in your head, and they're really important to start to, to see. Um, I learned from Josh during the Enneagram episode, there's horizontal development and, and, and vertical development. Yeah. Horizontal development, I think, is around learning like pragmatic skills and vertical development around maybe growth in, in consciousness. But can you explain, in your opinion, what the difference is between these two and how you apply that and what leaders, how leaders benefit from them and also people listening to this episode, how they can benefit from the, these two? Yeah, like horizontal development, like, like you said, is kind of about skills or like capacities, you know, kind of better time management, better product, uh, productivity management. Um, and that, that is really useful, right? It does allow us to do more, um, to work smarter, not harder, etc. So that stuff is very valuable. And that's what a lot of leadership coaching and business coaching, executive coaching is about, you know, and, and I, I do use that with my clients and when, when the time is right. Vertical development is something that I, I also discovered in New Ventures West, right? Uh, with Josh, you know, Josh was um, a classmate in my cohort, in my PCC cohort. Um, so we studied coaching together. We graduated together. And vertical development is, it's much more about um, my capacity, not my capability, and my capacity to be with what is. Um, and so, if you look at it through the Enneagram lens, a really unintegrated seven, so one that's not integrated, is usually suffering from addiction. They're all over the place. They can't make anything work. They've got way too many friends to, to stay in touch with all of them. They're doing way too many things. And so they're constantly out of batteries um, because they're over living life, right? They're eating too much, drinking too much, hanging out with people. And it's just this extravagance, right? Whereas a really integrated seven is happy just sitting in a park, uh, listening to the birds. That would be a complete experience. And so a really integrated seven um, has the capacity to just see that in this moment is perfection. In this moment is everything that I need to be complete. They don't need to grasp for more food, more drink. So that's kind of what, what vertical development supports us in, is like, how do we become our essential selves? How do we have way more bandwidth to deal with uncertainty, complexity. So for example, um, an unintegrated Enneagram type, um, sadness and anger and confusion are all bad things. 
I don't want to feel sad. I don't want to be angry. Being angry is bad, you know, all of that stuff. Whereas for a really integrated seven um, or any, any Enneagram type, um, sadness is a beautiful experience. It really is. And I can be sad and very well at the same time. I can be angry and incredibly well at the same time. I can be, I can have a loss, you know, like, you know, that I lost my mom a couple of years ago. And, you know, had I not had the support of, of these tools, God knows how I would have acted out in the world. I mean, it would have been a disaster. But because I have these tools, I can be with that loss, with that grief and sadness and all that it means to lose a parent and still be well, still be okay, still function, still work. I don't collapse. I don't disappear. Um, I, can, I can be even more effective um, as a coach with my clients because I'm really in the experience and feeling it fully and understanding it fully um, for all that it means, the good and the bad, right? Something something dies and something new is, is born. You know, what what was no longer possible can become possible. And what was possible is no longer possible. You know, like having a chat with my mom is no longer possible. But also redefining myself in, in the world becomes possible because I have one less reference that was really had a strong gravity for me in terms of defining me in a specific way. It's not there anymore. So I have broken free from that gravitational kind of pull and I'm able to see myself in different ways now that that's not there. And it's not good or bad, any of it. It just is. And it's way more possibility and, um, and capability for us when we, when we do our vertical development um, as well as horizontal stuff. Thank you for making that distinction clear. And if you look at the business world or, or the clients that you work with, uh, to what extent, because horizontal development, pragmatic skills, of course, any company will be open for that development. But to what extent are organizations open for this vertical development? Is that a small percentage or, or, or big or medium? Um, it really depends on the type of organization. So um, if you look at all the research, um, you know, uh, it shows things like that creative leadership is the best form, you know, best with uh, quotation marks, right? Form of leadership. Um, if you look at the big companies like, you know, Google, all the big tech companies, Google, Facebook, um, Apple, mindfulness has become front and center for them because as people are able to be with what is in a more effective way, they are less uh, shaken, they're less moved, and so they're less likely to be inconsistent, they're less likely to be reactive, um, they can have better relationships. Um, and so a lot of the companies that are doing and looking at the research are moving in that direction. And there is definitely, in, in my read, anyway, Asper, I'd be interested to hear what you think. There's definitely an elitism to it because, you know, I'm, I'm in a two-year meditation teacher training program with Tara Brack and Jack Cornfield because I can afford it. Mm -hmm. And I have space in my calendar to do that. I don't know how many people have that privilege. And I don't know how many people that are not working in companies that promote well-being and mindfulness and presence as uh, uh, good practices. I don't know how present those things are. I mean, it really, it's still a game that, you know, kind of people that have more money um, and more access play. And so I would say that the executives that I coach in, in corporations, they're definitely wealthy corporations. Um, Having said that, I also coach change makers pro bono, right? So there's, uh, um, I have uh, um, a couple of uh, change makers I'm working with at the moment 
because for me, if I hadn't had have had access, I would not be in the space that I am in right now. Yeah. Absolutely, no, no question in my mind. So, um, so still certain uh, elitism uh, around it. But if you connect this question to to the consciousness coalition, where you want to scale well-being, also in underserved communities. Um, would you then start with this horizontal development or with the vertical de development, or is it both relevant for these underserved communities? Well, I would say um, at a community level, it applies differently, the horizontal and vertical. I would say I would say vertical development is critical for all of us in just being well in, in the midst of complexity. Um, but for the communities that, that we're um, working with um, in, in COCO, um, we're, we're looking more at the positive deviant stuff, Jasper. So what already exists in this community um, that is a well-being practice that is, you know, probably thousands of years old, that is absolutely, um, uh, has absolutely evolved to be relevant to these people here right now. And how do we amplify what already exists before we bring in anything new? Um, and I think that, you know, we use the term vertical development because it helps us organize our language and our thinking around it. But in different communities, that might have very different names. Um, and so it's more about finding what works in the local context that means something roughly the same, that has a history of helping people show up in a way where they are more capable, they have more access to, to more of themselves, they're more effective in the world. Um, And so that might be a combination of horizontal and vertical development. It could be, for example, learning, <clears throat> you know, Qigong in a community in China. Uh, you know, that, that would be a new skill. So that's kind of horizontal, but it would create the possibility for more vertical development because your nervous system would be more resourced. Um, so on the community level, it would probably be both and maybe some other things that aren't in there as well. Yeah. Thanks for, for sharing. It's good to get a, a picture of this, this, this landscape. And um, the integral theory uh, that you have learned or, or used, I think it was developed by Ken Wilber, right? Yeah, Ken Wilber. And, I, you know, if it's all of these things are based on kind of what came before. So there's a lot of philosophers um, in there, like I think there's Hegel and Heidegger, Husserl, some linguistics as well. Um, uh, Ken Wilbur and there's someone else that I, I just my my I've got a blank spot where there's a name at the moment, um, but yeah, it's it's kind of revolves around adult development, um, mm. um, the different stages of the development, different stages of of development in 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 your life. But there's different stages in your life, but also within different life phases, you can have different levels of development. I assume. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. There's, you know, the, the stages of kind of being a kid and being an adolescent and being an adult and going into your kind of uh, golden years. Um, and then, you know, for us right now in our in the age that we're in right now, there's definitely the capacity for us to show up in a more um, effective way um, by doing more of this kind of work, right? So, so but both are there. Um, yeah, and I think, you know, the different cultures you know, what we're talking about is from a very Western lens, uh, just to really name it as it is. So we're, we're using very Western uh, lens to talk about adult development, but in different cultures, it shows up in, in with different language and in very different ways, but it kind of means the same thing at the end of the day. Yeah, and you know, 
one of the things about um, vertical development um, or adult development is that as we get older, we generally lean towards contribution more. So we're less mm. self-focused and we're more focused on what we yeah. can offer or bring, bring to the world. More focus on others. I think Jack Ma, right, the founder of Alibaba, said something like, I, I don't know, but you have to learn till you're 30, then make some money till you're 40, and then start contributing or something like that. Do, do you remember yeah. what he said? Yeah, I, I don't remember exactly kind of kind of what you said. I think it's yeah. kind of close enough to... Something yeah. along these lines, yeah. Yeah. So you you shared a bit about your background, about the the, the, the things that you've learned in your life, the things you're doing right now. One of the things I really like one saying is how you spend your days, how you spend your lives. So can you share a bit, if you look at at an average day, how you apply all these lessons and these tools to your, your yeah, how an average day looks like or so how you run a day? Mm. Yeah, so um, it kind of it depends what's happening. So if I'm studying something major, I'll wake up at six and do studying in the first hour of the morning. Um, that's, you know, for me, my peak productivity is between 6 and 12. Um, so I'll, you know, or maybe 5 and 12. So I'll wake up early and study. Um, generally, day starts with a meditation. So Lou, uh, my other half, Lou and I um, will kind of just in bed, uh, do a meditation together. Um, one of our teachers, um, guided meditation. And then um, kind of getting ready for the day, um, throughout the day, uh, you know, I, I'm working from home at the moment during the pandemic, so that makes things easier. Throughout the day, I'll, I'll take mini breaks. So, you know, we, we go to park downstairs, so I'll go downstairs and just have a coffee, you know, sip my coffee slowly in the park, watching the animals, you know, the, the squirrels, the birds, uh, kind of really connecting to that. Um, and that that's a form of um, co-regulation. So I'm kind of, my nervous system is connecting to so to speak, the nervous system in the park, and it's really bringing my nervous system down. Um, <clears throat> throughout the day, I'll, I'll do different practices. So I'm an Enneagram 7, like I said, so I like variety. Um, mm -hmm. And so I'll use different things in my day. So one of the things I'll use is coherent breathing, um, which is breathing at a certain rate to bring the nervous system down. And I do that you know, through YouTube videos that have... Um, kind of a pitch that you breathe into as it goes up and a pitch that you breathe out to as it goes down. I'll do that for like five minutes, you know, maybe a couple of once or twice a day. That'll really bring my nervous system down as well. Um, Qigong, I'm a big fan of Qigong. I do, um, you know, Qigong almost daily. So at some point through the day, usually in the morning, I'll start with it just to kind of get the whole body moving and the energy flowing in the body quite well. Um, around lunchtime, I'll make myself um, a nice big bowl of salad. Uh, at the moment, I'm doing a vegan diet with no salt, oil, or sugar. Um, so I'm really eliminating those things. It's not forever, but it's it's working for the time being. Um, so I'll do that, and I'll go for a walk uh, downstairs, um, even if it's just around the block. Um, you know, just walking around the block is such a magical experience if it's done well, um, really. Right, but it's beautiful. Yeah, really, absolutely. And then, you know, throughout the day, I'll take, you know, little micro breaks where I, you know, five minutes I'll meditate or I'll, um, you know, do the coherent breathing thing. Um, end of the day, um, usually my wife and I will do something exercise-wise. So we'll go for a walk 
or our favorite is uh, dancing. So we'll put on uh, 80s hits. Uh, they have to be really cheesy. Um, cheesy 80s hits, blast the music, and just party, um, mm. even if it's just for 20 minutes. Um, or we'll do something like yoga or qigong, some other form of activity, or go for a nice long walk, for like an hour walk. And then in the evenings, we just try and wind down. So um, the, the attempt always is to be in bed by around 10 um, and just read for an hour um, or so uh, to kind of really wind down, but not watching Netflix or anything like that in bed. That's beautiful um, how you spend your day. I, I got distracted because I got an email from Booking.com about one of my upcoming trips. It's funny because we started our conversation about Booking.com. <laughs> but, uh, anyway, um, that's, that's beautiful. Um, one thing you mentioned is the nervous system. I want to know a bit more about that. So why is that relevant and, 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 and how did you discover that? Yes, d definitely discovered it through integral coaching. Um, and there's a great book, uh, not the easiest read, but it's a decent read. It's called um, The Polyvagal Theory in Therapy. Mm -hmm. And the polyvagal theory is, is like how the nervous system is divided into different parts. And, um, you know, there's, uh, I won't go into the technicalities of it because it, it, it just won't be that interesting. But what I can say is that um, this idea of fight, flight, or flee. Um, uh, or rest, that's built into our nervous system. So different parts of our nervous system, when activated, will either put us into a state of rest, uh, social connection, um, conversation, creativity. So in this conversation now, we're both probably in our parasympathetic uh, state where we can connect, we can laugh, we can play, we can learn from each other. Um, the next level up is when we're a bit mobilized where there's something in us detects a threat, right? It's usually the, the body, the right hemisphere feels a threat somewhere. And then we become a bit more mobilized where we might lean forward a bit more. There might be a bit of tension in the body ready to kind of make a move. And then when that gets really kind of triggered, that can go into full fight or flight or freeze or collapse, right? And so a collapse is, is the kind of last state, uh, the dorsal vagal where, um, you get to a point where you just lose the ability to function. Um, so in animals, it would look like freezing, absolute death. It looks like the animal's dead. And that's a survival mechanism, right? The, all the blood, uh, all the organs, everything is kind of in a protected state um, because you're, you're, all the resources are you know, kind of marshaled and channeled um, um, in a way that gives you the best odds of being able to survive, right? So that's when you're in a shock state where you don't really feel the pain that you're in. You don't really know what's going on. It helps you just get through that, that situation. And so our nervous system is always moving between those states. Um, mm -hmm. Whether we're aware of it or not is irrelevant. Um, and so working with the nervous system is this beautiful process of learning to, to understand what it feels like in your body and in your emotional world, in your mental world, in each of these different states and consciously moving from a state where you might be just about to step into an argument in fight or flight, um, uh, you know, either slamming the door and leaving the room or yelling louder. And instead of doing that, you notice all the, the telltale signs that, ah, oh, I know this, I'm just about to get into, into one uh, here. And you're able to say, right, so what do I do? Well, I can do some breathing, that'll bring me down a bit. I can go for a walk. Um, I can talk to someone that I like. 
uh, I can hang out with my dog or my cat, or you know, if you have any pets, or I can do something that makes me feel a bit better, like listen to some really good music. All of these things are things that will then bring my nervous system back into a state where <clears throat> I have access to the front of my brain, the prefrontal cortex, the neocortex, cortex, right, where I can then make reasons, reasonable decisions again, or I can converse with you. So in leadership, you can imagine that when two leaders are facing off on, on each other and they don't have any of these skills, you're basically talking about two people who don't have access to all of their brain. They only have access to the, the reptilian bits of the brain, right, which is fight or flight. And if one of the leaders can de-escalate to a point where they are spacious enough to access their creativity, their forward thinking, <clears throat> they'll have the presence of mind to say, doesn't look like it makes sense to have this chat right now. Why don't we come back to this tomorrow? Yeah. And instead of a disaster happening, you've got like a disaster averted, so to speak. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's very, uh, very insightful. So the body, the nervous system, they're very important uh, themes. Um, yeah, maybe another question I have is like, what's kind of a topic that you want to share a bit more about or what question uh, should I have asked? Yeah, <clears throat> what question should you have asked? I think something, you know, on this topic of equitable well-being, well-being for all, right? If I kind of gear myself towards the listeners of this podcast, some really cool organizations or techniques to try out to support them in being well in the middle of complexity, I think that, that would be something useful to share, right? So that it's uh, the people listening can, can leave with something that they can look at. Yeah, no, that would be cool, so. Please go ahead. Yeah. So I would say um, for the men out there, um, uh, I think shadow work and men's work is critical. Um, if we look at the state that leaders are showing up in the world, you know, this kind of whole Putin-esque, um, you know, leading from in front, that is a very old, old, in my opinion, definition of masculinity and being a man that is not useful to us anymore. Um And so I would say that there's some beautiful organizations out there that uh, men can go to that will allow them to do some of this work. Um, one that I'm involved in is the Mankind Project. Um, I love MKP. I think they do great work uh, really redefining what it means to be a man in today's world. And that, that means showing up as a complete human being. Um, and the beautiful thing about MKP is that, um, you know, you have these uh, I groups or integration groups that you meet with um, that are people in your local area and you get to do the shadow work, man. You get to talk about all of the things that bring um, joy and anger and happiness and growth in your life, as well as really looking at the areas of us that we're not really often comfortable looking at in a safe space. In, in a way that, you know, th this organization has been around since the 80s, so it's not young, um, in a way that brings together all the best of like psychology and coaching and philosophy, um, indigenous wisdom um, with permission. You know, there's, there's permissions always been asked for by MKP um, in a really safe container. So I'd say for, for the men out there, definitely, if you can go to the Mankind Project or a men's group, And, and really um, explore all of your edges because that is, you know, the, the ancient Greeks left us two, two pieces of major wisdom. Um, know thyself, 
and to thine own self be true or be true to yourself. Mm. And I think that, you know, for men, Mankind Project is a great way, great safe space to do that, um, as is coaching and therapy. Um, Beautiful. And is it expensive to join or how, practically speaking? No, I mean, you know, it um, it is uh, open to everyone. So even if you don't have any money, there are scholarships and programs for that. There's a, a beautiful experience that you undergo to join the Mankind Project. It's called the New Warrior Training Adventure. It's like a weekend where you really get immersed in a lot of this uh, stuff. Um, and for women, Jasper, the there's, I think, two networks, women within and women in power. Um, women in power. Yeah, women within and women in power. And, you know, kind of similar to MKP, uh, these are safe spaces for women to really go through their own journey, own journey of um, understanding who they are in, in this world as a woman. Um, and, you know, for me, at first it felt a bit unintuitive to do it just with, you know, men and women. Like, you know, why, why would we need to alienate the other, uh, um, you know, the other uh, kind of sex? And I understand why in... in in the MKP, you know, um, and it's not not about you know gay or straight. There's a lot of you know uh, people on all, you know, the full spectrum is available at MKP, and and all of us working together. So it's not about you know the old school masculinity man definition at all. And that's exactly the point. It's about everything. But there's something about um, creating a space where one can be fully authentic without worrying about how we're looking in front of. Um, the other uh, sex that really is is magical. It allows for um, really really deep connection um, in a way that is I haven't experienced um, elsewhere in gr in group. Um, and then other resources, I would say Qigong is such an easy easy thing to do. Um, there's a great uh, on YouTube if you YouTube Lee Holden seven minutes. There's like a short seven minute Qigong. Um, uh, practice super easy, way easier than yoga for people that don't like to move their bodies that will really help just get the body moving and it'll help start that conversation around, ah, I have a body and it moves and, and I, I can connect with it. And um, it'll also start um, the journey of understanding how energy moves in the body, which is a really, really valuable um, thing. Um, I would say... Uh, other things that are really useful, somatic therapy. Um, you know, talk therapy is great and it works very well for a lot of people. And a lot of talk therapy or co cognitive therapy can be around becoming more comfortable with the emotions we experience and mm -hmm. kind of unpacking life a bit. And there's a whole other type of therapy that can only be done in the body, um, which is the somatic therapy. And so um, things like expressing anger, you know, let's say that someone in our family does something really bad to us. Yeah, we can, we can talk about it. We can process it. But there's part of us in our body that needs to get the anger out. And so, you know, beating the crap out of a boxing bag, screaming no at the top of your lungs might sound terrifying, but it's what the body needs to do. And so, yeah, we want the head to process things, but we also need, want the body to process things. And so somatic therapy can be, a really powerful way of making sure that we're not holding on to stuff um, as we move through our lives, but that we're processing stuff and, and, and letting it go. Um, and that can be done in group or it can be done individually. Um, there's a great, uh, there's many, many schools, but the one, the one I'll name here is 
uh, somatic experiencing. Um, that's by Peter Le, uh, Levine or Levine. Um, the family of George. Sorry, is that the family of George Levine? No, 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 I asked Josh. No, not not connected. Um, <laughs> yeah, but uh, but amazing stuff, right? It helps us process trauma as it happens, as it happens, and it's for, it's entirely science based. There's so much research; it's almost you know unbelievable. Um, another tool I'll mention, Jasper, is mindfulness meditation. Um, you know, um, I'm enrolled in the uh, Jack Cornfield Tara Brack uh, Meditation Teacher Training Program. They also offer free stuff online every week. Um, they have more of a Buddhist flavor, but there's many, you know, kind of secular flavors out, secular flavors out there. But um, what I'll say, Jasper, and this hopefully will be useful to a few people, meditation is not not having thoughts. That is not what meditation is. Mm. Um, our brain will you know secrete thoughts like our salivary glands secrete saliva it is just what our brain does meditation is um is allowing those thoughts to occur and not having any judgment around them and not engaging with them but just allowing them to be the way it is right and so the the beauty of meditation and mindfulness is that we can start to look at what's going on inside us with so much more clarity without having a judgment about whether that's right or wrong, but we just start to get data on who we are and how we show up in the world and what's really going on for us. And by not engaging, we create space around those experiences so that, yeah, I might have the idea, for example, to, I don't know, go eat a chocolate bar. And if I am a practice mindfulness practitioner, I'll see that that thought and the craving that connect to it don't last very long. None of them do because they're going to be replaced by something else. So it's about creating the space to be more open to more of me and also to be less moved uh, by, by me. Um, and I, I would say that everyone and their uncle and aunt should do meditation if they can. It is um, such a powerful thing. And I'll say two caveats to that. One is that if you have trauma, um, and it's activated by meditation, then find a trauma-informed practitioner. There's many people that are in that space right now, and it's a really big field now, trauma-informed mindfulness. And the other is that if sitting for you is not a good thing, then try a walking meditation. Um, and that is as simple as very slowly putting one foot in front of the other and just really feeling into your feet, feeling into your body, um, uh, being fully there, not in your head. You know, when you get distracted in your head, just come back to the feeling in your feet. Um, yeah. And then time for a couple more, Jasper, or? Sure, no, we have, we have time until you have to leave. I wanted yeah. to create a podcast format without any time constraints. Nice. Um, Very nice. Yeah, I'll mention um, focusing. Focusing might not be as well known by people um, uh, as some of these other things, but Focusing um, is a, what is it? Focusing is a way to bring the left hemisphere of the brain and the right hemisphere of the brain into more integration. It's a really magical process where you're sitting there and you're really looking at what's happening inside you in relation to a topic. So let's say that, Jasper, that we're doing a focusing session and you're bringing up a recent event that really upset you. Um, you would you would be looking at how your body reacts to the topic and you would really be sensing into, you know, when you bring up this topic that upset you, 
is there like a, a tightness in the stomach? And what does that tightness mean? And when you start exploring that tightness in the right context, you'll see stories coming out with it, images coming out with it, memories coming up with it. And it's a really, really powerful way of accessing what usually would be in your subconscious or unconscious. Um, focusing really allows you, it kind of makes the, the, the barrier between the conscious and the subconscious more permeable. So you have deeper access to what's really going on inside you. And for me, it has been such a powerful trauma, PTSD um, uh, processing uh, mechanism. Massive, massive for me. Um, and then uh, I think the last one I'll name is just uh, dancing at home, like partying at home. I cannot, I cannot over uh, uh, overshout how dancing at home on your own with a loved one to music that you like just shaking the body and moving it, it, that is so valuable. It's so valuable. The, the body often processes fear and trauma through shaking. Um, wow. And we've been socialized not to do that, right? We were taught that we shouldn't shake, we shouldn't shiver, we shouldn't show. So when you allow the body just to flow freely and really shake, there's so much crap that can be let go of. Um, I think that's also, also technique, right? The shaking. I mean, it's 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 built into. If you look at a gazelle being chased by a, a lion, you know, the second it's not being chased, it'll shake to literally flush flush out the um, the uh, kind of stress hormones and the toxins, the adrenaline, all of that stuff. So, yeah, it's something that we we've been taught not to do, but actually is really really important part of. Um, that's what trauma release exercise or experience really supports with. It helps you recreate that shaking. Another tool to add to the list. Well, that's beautiful. Thank you very much for this uh, uh, yeah, list of recipes because the Soul Kitchen is also about uh, sharing recipes for people that really, um, yeah, really inspiring and, uh, and useful. I really, yeah, inter interesting the journey that you've made, right? From social entrepreneurship, system change, your own challenges, and then you, in you combine it with well-being. Um, I think this is very useful for, for people I'm considering at some point to maybe make a resource from all the recipes of the different guests. That Love would it. be cool to create like a, a book for that. Um, before you leave, because you have to go in eight minutes, right? Yeah. Yeah. So this is a question that you, you might not expect, but I, I, I know you have lived in Japan and um, it's, that's also an experience that, that I might want to have at some point in my life. Like, why did you go there? How long did you stay? What did it bring you? Uh, would you recommend the experience to other people? How is it related to your journey? Long story short, like, what, what's the Japan thing? Oh, good question. Um, <laughs> I had a business in the UK. Uh, I was in my 20s. Um, I was studying a martial art, a Japanese martial art, um, called uh, Bujinkan Budo Taijutsu. Um, it's more commonly known as, like, ninjutsu, um, you know, the ninjas and stuff you see in the movies. And my business partners turned out to be crooks. So I had to shut down my business, uh, lost a lot of money. And it was, you know, my first really big business um, explosion and, and such a good lesson for me. Um, and so I was studying the martial art and I was like, oh man, like I'm, I'm young, uh, I'm, I need a break. I'll just go live in Japan for a bit um, and study this martial art with the grandmaster, right? You know? As a kid, I was very influenced by karate kids, so I wanted to, to you know, kind of go to Japan and, and experience that. Uh, so I did like a teaching qualification, um, you know, a Cambridge English language teaching uh, qualification. 
went to Japan uh, and lived there, ended up living there for three years. Um, mm -hmm. I lived in so many different places. I think I had seven, I lived in seven different places um, over the time. And uh, studied martial arts with the Grandmaster, incredible experience. Um, I think he's, he's the guy that really allowed me to become a change maker. Um, mm -hmm. I'm talking about Soke Hatsumi Sensei. Um, he, he, um, he really showed me that when he talks about ninja and martial arts these days, he's talking about uh, love. He's talking about the power of love and the power of uh, creating safe spaces. You know, that's in the old, in the old world, you'd walk into a bar and you'd like, look at all the guys. You'd be like, oh, I could beat that guy up. I could beat that guy up. And in this new world that he introduced me to, you'd walk into a bar and it would be safer because you're there. Everyone would be a bit safer because you're there. And so he really, helped me embody what he calls jihi no kokoro, the benevolent heart. I really mm. saw him living um, that benevolence in, in, in everything. You know, this is a guy that you go and you learn martial arts and then he'll pause the whole session and he'll start painting for people. And you can ask him to paint you a beautiful, um, you know, shoji Japanese calligraphy thing. Um, and then I ended up moving around different areas. I got into music again. So I was a musician when I was younger. I ended up having a couple of bands that were, you know, one of them was quite successful in Japan. Um, we were playing really big gigs in, in Shibuya and in Shinjuku. Um, I had a whole bunch of friends. They were all Japanese musicians. So I had to learn Japanese to be able to speak to them because I really wanted to communicate with these people that I felt were like so deeply cool. Um, and so, you know, I ended up, having just once in a lifetime experience, Jasper. Like really, you know what it was? I went somewhere with no safety net. I didn't know anyone there. I didn't speak the language. I didn't have friends or family that could bail me out. And I left feeling really successful. You know, I, my, my, my bands were doing well. I was doing business consulting and, and, and um, you know, to kind of execs in, in different companies. And I just felt like, wow, I went somewhere. I did it. And I came back and I feel I can do this. I can do this life thing now. Um, That's so cool. I, I would recommend it for you, Jasper. It is, it is the most advanced non-Western civilization. And it's just so beautiful to see people that are living a completely different lifestyle to what we're used to in so many different ways. That's beautiful. Would you recommend me uh, living the, the urban life in Japan or more like the the Buddhist monastery life or a combination of both? Check it all out, man. I mean, it's so, it's so different. It's so different, you know, um, check it all out. Like go, go for the whole thing. Yeah. Go for the whole shabam. Yeah. You know what, what I learned in, in Japan is that the longer you're there, the less it makes sense. Even if you speak Japanese, I, I yeah. really, I thought I got it more when I first landed than when I left. And another thing is that, um, something in Japan is true and it's exact opposite is true as well. Um, and so, I met some of the kindest, loveliest, most generous and loving people I, I have in my life in Japan, and also some of the angriest and most xenophobic um, uh, in Japan. And so it is such a country of, of extremes in so many ways. Like most people are really, um, in my reading, conforming, and the few that are outliers are not conforming are mega creative. And it's changing. It's absolutely changing. I, I don't know how long Japan is going to be Japan. You know, um, That's, uh, McDonald's is now one of the biggest uh, kind of uh, restaurants that kids like to hang out at. So it's it's definitely shifting. That's uh, that's really interesting. And yeah, because you mentioned you have an international upbringing, and you've also lived internationally. So 
what what uh, these geographical shifts uh, what have they meant to you and are you still into that or is that like your previous life phase definitely slowing down more now um, but I think that every time I've lived in a culture I've learned that there's a different way of seeing things in the world so it really opened my mind my, my eyes to 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 just how diverse we are as human beings and how the same thing can mean such different things. Um, and so it really helped me be less judgmental around what I encounter in life. Um, because there's, there's as many ways of seeing something as our, our ways of being in the world. Um, you know, billions of different ways of, of, of seeing things. So, yeah. It, it helps to, to broaden your, your perspective, right? And that's maybe also why you ended up as a coach then you, you you give people new perspectives yeah yeah i think i think also language is something to do with it right so when you when you're in different countries that use different words for different things and each word means something slightly different in each different language it opens up the possibility for you of what that thing actually is in the world um is a dog good or bad you know does it bark or you know, does it go woof woof or does it man man or like you know all these different I don't know it's it's kind of it really I think language can really expand the experience of being alive um, and and traveling is really a, a big part of that especially when you live in different cultures yeah yeah well thank you for your 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 time and, and sharing your life story I think it's really uh, inspiring the breath of your your life um is there a final thing uh, you want to share with the listeners before you jump onto your next uh, next thing mm, that's a good question um i don't know man i think i think i've reached a point in my life where i'm learning how to do less and the focus is on being happy and being well and i just you know i wish for everyone listening to this to do a bit less and just to be happy and 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 to really kind of choose choose joy at every moment you can absolutely choose joy. Thank you for your wise words. It was amazing, uh, Adam. Lovely seeing you, man. Take care of yourself. Thank you for listening and uh, see you next time.